0: Hello, Teenage America.
1: Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and on this special edition of the True Tunes podcast, we celebrate a friendship of, well, let's say several decades. Of the many things longtime attendees of the Cornerstone Festival miss, one of those is surely talking and talking and more talking. Sure, social media has given us a way to stay connected after a fashion, but there was no substitute for physically reconnecting every year or even every couple of years with members of the tribe. And for many years, summer meant another chance to hang out with friends like Randy Layton who's had a profound personal effect on both Bruce and myself. Many of you will know Randy's name from his role as head of Alternative Records, the boutique label responsible for some first-rate reissue CDs and vinyl featuring the likes of The 77's Robert Vaughn and Steve Scott among others. But long before he was an entrepreneur, Randy was a historian, a record collector, and a tireless promoter of music that frequently escaped the notice of mainstream media. We featured a few comments and observations from Randy over the past three and a half years, but today we finally play for you the rest of my extended chat with our enigmatic friend. And because Randy has had his hands all over some fantastic music over the last 40 years or so, we've just loaded up the jukebox with all kinds of related tunes and Bruce is going to let the record spin all over the show. special True Tunes time machine takes flight right after we take care of a little bit of housekeeping.
0: Hey there, Matt here, Patreon backer of True Tunes, reminding you that there are a few things that you can do that both help True Tunes and should be good for you, too. First, make sure to sign up for the email list at truetunes.com so they don't have to pay middlemen to send you information. Next, make sure to leave a review and rating at Apple Podcasts if you have not yet. Also, find and follow the Spotify mix that John curates for us every week. It's amazing. Also, don't miss the swag shop. There are a few things you can order directly from the store and others that can be custom printed for you at the True Tunes store at Threadless. If you can support the show on a monthly basis, join me and the other backers at patreon.com slash truetunes, or consider making a one-time gift via the PayPal link on the show notes page. Lastly, make sure to tell your friends about the show. Personal word of mouth is definitely the best marketing. Thanks.
1: And we're back with my good friend and hero, Randy Layton.
2: I feel lonely, isolated, cut off
3: from you. I feel uptight, aggravated, what else is new? I feel a whole lot better if I could only talk to you.
1: For being with us here on the podcast it's great to hear from you we go back man <laughs> we, got, we got
4: some history we do yeah <laughs> we long do. ways
1: yeah so tell um, me tell me about your your beginnings like how did you get into this scene
4: my first introduction to christian music would have been early 70s and then i came back to it by the late 70s and so i was just kind of always around that Tell me about um, that
1: early 70s stuff that you came across. What was that like? What was that scene like? What was your exposure to it like?
4: Well, I had an older sister by about five years who was into that. I mean, she got, you know, pulled into the Jesus movement around 72. And so I would go with her to these uh, get togethers and. That's where I first got exposure to early CCM or Jesus music. Obviously, that's been a point of uh, debate recently with the movie. But yeah, things like you know Must Receive Faith and Love Song and the you know the Maranatha Records. I just remember listening to them and going, you know, this would be a lot better if it didn't have all the Jesus stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that was sort of my my take on it. But but it was an introduction. But then she left it i I left it behind, and I didn't come back really until uh nineteen seventy eight in which i fell in with with a couple of guys from a from a sort of a local church and they were very good at, at sort of you know sucking me back into the into uh, taking this seriously so uh which I did and so by the summer of the, of that what seventy eight I had rededicated my life to to the lord and and i was always into music and into the arts and i grew up with musicians you know my father was a professional musician so i was always around music and i was already into poetry and the arts and things like that and so as i began to kind of look around and see what was available to christians in, in those fields i found some you know terrific things but I was still kind of frustrated a little bit with, with the quality of, of a lot of it. And so that probably led me to seeking out things wherever I could. We were getting flyers from Warehouse Ministries. I was living in Reading at the time, and uh, they were putting on shows, and And uh, I saw that guys like Steve Scott were involved, and I was already familiar with Steve, not only through his first album, but also through his writings and Radix, because we used to get that at the mm-hmm. house I was at. And I was already connecting with people overseas as well, so you know, I was getting hooked to all the things that were coming out in the UK and Germany and elsewhere during that time frame. But circling back to to the alternative story, I just remember that, uh, you know, the the catalyst really for everything was when uh, All Fall Down came out. Because I hadn't been impressed with with the first Sevens album. It was okay. I mean, for a lot of people, that's like a huge thing for them. I, I just was like, well, it's all right, you know. But when All Fall Down came out, I was just really impressed by the jump, almost like a quantum leap for me in terms of the production, the lyrical content, everything. You know, the music, it just seemed like it was a different band practically, which which it was really in some ways. So I just wrote a letter to Jan Volz, or Jan wound up being the guy getting it, to say, look, I just want to let you know that I just got this thing. And I, had, and I played side one like three times before I even flipped it over. That's the sort of impression it made. And just kind of went on with, with a few thoughts about just where I was with, with the stuff. And, and so he wrote back and he said, you know, we're all reading this and we're all just floored and, you know, we should uh, connect. We're having trouble getting bookstores to actually even display the record. Uh, you have to ask for it and that sort of thing. Not long after that, I wound up coming, uh, making a visit down to Sacramento, and met people there. And I got asked early on to help out with uh, distribution to radio, so I got involved that way, and I did that from the A uh, and M distribution days through the Island days, and so became very close to pretty much you know everyone there, act wise, but especially you know Steve and. In the Sevens. And uh, when the whole thing imploded, I I just remember one day just talking to Tamira Neely, who was the head of the whole thing, and just going, look, you know, I've been sitting on these Seed Scott tapes forever. I mean, they're just amazing. You know, this unreleased material, you know, two albums he had recorded and not, not had come out. And I just said, you know, what if I put that out? She thought that was a great idea. And, gave me the the masters to work with mike got involved and that was the first album that we did so alternative was really formed initially as as a label it was formed initially to put out that steve scott record it had been around as a business since 1979 because i started uh, doing mail order for for christian music from over the world uh using that that name so i did that until 1985 or six, kind of retired, the, you know, the whole thing, but then brought it back as a label just to do that project. And then it just kind of carried on from there where I did the seven and seven, this thing and all that. So if I hadn't written that letter, I mean, none of that would have happened, you know, and it wasn't me seeking to do anything. It was just going, I, I love what you're doing. I get it. You, you have my support. And it just evolved from, from that, from that uh, point on.
5: You turn a page in a book And it seems to have been written about you The memories flood back Of all the things you used to do Full moon climbs on the windowsill You stand in its light and you drink your fill You're catching a sight of yourself in a broken mirror The cold tide of moonlight washes you back through the years As the images unfold, you're watching through a veil of tears You catch the words of a song, it all falls into place. But there's a missing jigsaw piece, and nothing seems to fill that space. As you gaze at yourself in a broken mirror.
1: What was your impression of that exit records scene in Sacramento? Why do you suppose that community was able to generate so much great music and such a different overall energy compared to everything else that was going on. <laughs> it, was, it was such an anomaly.
4: They, they were just fortunate to, to, to bring in people that happened to be, you know, very, very talented, you know. When, when Charlie came in, Peacock, you know, he brought in, a, a, you know, an immense creativity and, and other people with him also that were, you know, very creative. See, Scott was a huge deal because he had come on board in the early, I mean, pre-exit during the, uh, you know, Sangre days after getting fed up with the whole solid rock thing and that record not happening. Getting hooked up with with Warehouse Ministries and coming on board on staff, but he was also bringing with him his songs and his poetry and everything else that Steve is. So you have that element, and you have the sevens.
3: You're the one with the perfect skin, unscarred by any passion. I'm the man who's wondering if I'm just this year's fashion If you say I'm written on your life and
2: your eyes are wide open if you Say I'm written on your soul and ride me on your skin
4: I said tattoo, tattoo me on you So it started with you had this great talent pool and you had a church that was very much already engaged in pushing Christianity and, and, and the arts, you know, really up in the game. You know, they had the Rock and Religion series. So that was put together uh, that, you know, uh, in a pre-exit. The idea behind it was to... Initially, it would be to bring in Christian artists and talk about their records and do interviews and you know, explore that.
6: This is Rock and Religion, brought to you each week in the public interest. Mary Neely continues her conversation with T-Bone Burnett and Steve Souls, who together with David Mansfield recorded three albums for Arista Records under the name Alpha AlphaPand.
3: In this particular album, you're presenting a very strong viewpoint,
0: more so than in the other two albums, is that correct? I think so, yeah. Why did you do that? I mean, it was just something that you're just feeling compelled to do.
2: I sense a real absence of charity, regular Christian charity. You know? There's a thousand chances every day walking down the street to help somebody. There's some guy that walks up and says, hey man, you got a quarter? You know, if you take that guy and say, hey man, you look like you could use a burger, come on, you know. And if, and if you give him, buy him a burger, you know, and talk to him, and lay five bucks on him and say that comes from Jesus brother or something like that. That means a lot more to him than I mean, he'll remember that. If there is real charity, like I think that's probably the most important, at least one of the most important virtues of a Christian, you know. And there seems to be a real absence of it. Today people are too it's it's become even more bourgeois. You know, the, the bourgeoisie sold out Christianity in the first place. But
4: it began to also expand into talking about other topics and and subjects that you just didn't hear on Christian radio or Christian syndicated radio, which, you know, this would have been, um, you know, shows on Dylan, shows on LSD and the occult and mysticism and things like that. So, you know, there really wasn't anyone else doing that.
3: In 1967, when Young America's love affair with British rock musicians was flowering, and songs about love, peace, and flowers filled the airways, an album appeared by an obscure Los Angeles group called The Doors. Danny Sugarman, co-author of the recent biography about The Doors' late singer Jim Morrison, entitled No One Here Gets Out Alive, described the group.
6: Ray was a classical pianist, Jim was a poet, John Densmore was a jazz drummer, Robbie Krieger was a flamenco guitarist. So you didn't have your standard rhythm and blues, four people with the same roots getting together. You have four people from totally different backgrounds, totally different influences, getting together to make rock and roll.
3: The Doors played before thousands and recorded seven albums in a short five years between 1967 and 1971, at which time The Doors' charismatic lead singer, Jim Morrison, died at age 27.
4: That kind of stuff built the basis for what the label became. The label was an outgrowth of that kind of thinking. So you had a church leadership that was really in- encouraging, you know, pushing the envelope from their creative point of view. And they were very interested in also trying to eventually get these acts in front of a non-church crowd as well and seeing what kind of impact that could make. So I give Mary, you know, uh, and Lewis a lot of you know credit for that for that vision. It may not have been a singular vision, but they happened to be pretty successful at it. I think the attempts to get into the secular market were less so because it was such a, a hill to climb.
2: Drums and beating ceaseless ringing Words are denied
1: We often hear that the rock world was not interested in music that came from a Christian perspective. Did you see that actually happening? What's your firsthand account of the way the music industry was kind of subjugating or limiting artists of faith at that point in time?
4: If you go back to the early 70s and the Jesus movement, that had a big influence on those kind of topics suddenly showing up in in popular music. So, you know, whether that's Oceans Put Your Hand in the Hand or Jesus Just All Right With Me or, you know, all those kind of things that were going around during that period, it, it became easier to sort of talk about God and Jesus during that period. You know, then that kind of went away by the end of the 70s. You know, the Jesus movement had kind of died down and, but, you know, ultimately, music is, you know, popular music is a bottom line thing. If if you had an artist that was going to mention, you know, Jesus and their music, but they were also going to be immensely popular and sell a lot of records, I don't think a, a label would have had a problem with that. But there was also, I, I, I think, an inherent bias against against that. And I personally came across that later in the, in the exit story. The thing that's interesting when we're talking about this topic is that by... 1980, you had U2, and you had the alarm coming up, and after the fire, and these different groups, all who, you know, had, I mean, obviously, U2's level of success was way above anyone else's, but suddenly, it was—it seemed to be okay again to have, in popular music, themes of faith, and as long as those acts were were selling and doing well, I, I can include Simple Minds and much of other groups in this. I don't think the labels had a problem with that. I think the uh, barrier that we're talking about is not so much if you're signed to a major and you can have hits and, and work in faith themes, but if you're signed, but if if you're primarily a Christian label, then you're trying to piggyback onto a major for distribution and then get heard. That's a different story. That was Exit's problem. Is that you know each deal, whether it was A and M or Island, were you know P and D deals. They were publishing and distribution. You paid Island or you paid A and to basically you know press up your record and get it to radio. But because you weren't signed to those labels directly, those la- those labels didn't have any obligation to really pour a bunch of money behind your act. I was getting the AM RCA catalogs you know, where to sign a deal, a distribution deal. So Amy Grant's record could be found in a, in a commercial store, and you know, the Imperials and so on and so forth. Exit thought that they would be pushed to the college market by A&M, but all those, you know, exit records were given the same W-R prefix, uh, which meant word. So even though you had the a and you know, logo on the back and all that, if I were looking at this catalog, I would see that, down the grass was had a nice ride up and everything in the catalog, but I could also see that it was a wr you know deal. And if I went to the back end of the catalog, starting doing orders, you'd see this word section, and then the word section was Andy Grant, the Imperials, and and then you'd have Peacock and the Sevens. And if you didn't know any better, you would just go, "Well, why would I order this for my store when it's Christian product?" So I remember calling them after this. Showed up, you know, the, the very first catalog that introduced those those acts um, on, on exit for the first time and said, Look, you guys got a problem here because if I'm a buyer, I'm going to look at this as push product. And they just had a cow. They didn't have, they had no idea that that was going on. And so that became one of those things that, that drove them eventually to leave that deal and look for another one. And, uh, that became eventually the island deal. There were earlier instances of that sort of thing. I remember ABC, when they first signed up Solid Rock for distribution, I remember initially the, those records getting in, into chain stores on an automated basis, like depending on the size of your store, if it was pretty large, they might ship you one of everything they were putting out, you know? And so you would wind up with like one copy of The Sky is Fallen or something, or not The Sky Is Fallen, but, uh, Welcome to Paradise. But ultimately all all that is, is 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 that it hits the rack and then eventually nobody buys it and then it gets returned. you know. So the history of all of this is just problematic. It was much better just to be signed directly to you know either a really good college label. Like I think you know if the Sevens have been signed directly to say IRS, we might have a different story to tell you know, or Island, or 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 even directly to A&M. But the way those deals were, were set up, it was just going to be a slog.
5: The rock and roll is, is real hot right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And I like it, it's very good, it has a feeling, people enjoy it, people enjoy dancing to it, and uh, there's some very beautiful records made in rock and roll style, stuff like
1: Even though you're from the states, you were pretty wired in with what was going on overseas, and it's kind of a different, a different culture with UK and European artists who had a spiritual perspective to what they were doing versus what was happening in America. How was the UK scene different from the US scene, and why do you suppose that might have been?
4: It just hit me one day around, you know, in the around 1979, like. When I was discovering these acts overseas and going, well, why why can't we get that here? At that time, you know, the Garth Hewitts and uh, Ishmael—I mean, there's so many different bands I could name—weren't being carried in. You know, they they didn't have U.S. deals. So, and conversely, there were a number of American acts that weren't getting put out over there. You know, either. So, I started with that because, again, I had such an early interest in in arts and culture. Uh, and, and things like that. I was already picking up books like by Hans Ruckmacher or Schaefer and things like that, and uh, Steve Turner, among others, and being heavily influenced by that. So it just sort of naturally led me to, well, what can I find out there? Yes, yeah, so you had after the fire, who were on CBS, all that stuff. As I began to engage with people from you know the UK, and I had you know quite a network already by. 1981 he just found that culturally they it was really different Christian artists didn't feel the need that they had to sign with a Christian company they could pursue getting indie deals or major deals and expressing their faith you know through those projects and they weren't limiting themselves to just you know CCM you know companies But I'll also say that CCM companies over there seem to have an easier time also getting distribution through normal channels. You know, Malcolm and Alwyn's record, for example, is is a a good early example. Actually, I came out on Pi initially, which is a secular label. You just didn't have the same barriers. And and maybe because it's, it's a much smaller country. I mean, if we're looking at England, for example, in a much smaller industry, and so that's part of it I, I i just found that as i talked talk to christians you know that were involved in the arts they just had a whole different way of thinking and that was very different than what was going on over here i found that exciting i found it frustrating as i tried to promote those kind of things domestically or in this country i would hit barriers you know it was uh, you know an uphill battle it helped that we had the U2s of the world making an impact and having that sort of trickle down. But I just know that I began to really align myself more and more with what people were doing overseas, either from a musical perspective or even from evangelical, you know. Uh, and I mean it differently than what the term might mean here. Yes, I
2: am on a okay, my feet on the ground in a slave as Try and think these things out if you can The man who's just great, great and doubt he's not a foolish kind of man You say I'm hard, you decide to, it's great but now he cares I say it's great and know And I see you in a little high when I worship my father and my prayers Try and think these things out if you can the man thinks he's great as God. He to be some foolish kind of man. He says that face you say it's just a phase. You say it can never last. You say that it can never but the last. But say the same old story. It was 2,000 years past. Try and think these things out if you can. The man, the man thinks he's great than God. He must be some foolish kind of man.
1: The culture wars aspect of evangelicalism was a huge boon for the Christian music scene, for marketing Christian music in America because Christian music became a, an alternative to secular music. And it seems that that type of morphing or shift in evangelicalism didn't happen in the same way in the UK and Europe. Um, and so the artists, generally speaking, had a different way of understanding their mission and purpose as Christians who were artists. Steve Fernie and the Technos is a group that I want to talk about. Uh, is a great example of the different way of understanding your role as a person of faith as an and an artist.
4: Their roots go back much further than, say, Ritz. You know, they were involved as as I remember. Uh, from what, what i know steve scott and those guys first met up in 1970 i mean they were going so it went back a long ways as, as, as steve turner actually was, was around during, during the same time I and mean, they all knew each other so they were all involved and in all uh, already uh you know seeking how to ex- express themselves uh, artistically uh you know that far back and steve's uh, interests were in so many different fields you know, visual painting music i mean all, all, all kinds of things and acting, uh,
1: he was even an actor acting,
4: right? yeah acting you know he just didn't see walls right to him it was all, <laughs> it was all one playing field and he could explore that as a christian without having to contextualize it in a particular fashion so it made for i think much more uh genuine expressions of, of art and faith than I, I think, then, that then we got over here. They have the Greenbelt Arts Festival long before we were doing anything close to that here. And we've never actually really come close, although Cornerstone got, got there eventually. So if you put on, you know, foreign land, you're not going to go, oh, well, well that's a Christian record. But if you start exploring, you know, the whole album that, that that's from, I mean, you can find the Christianity, you know, in it. To get that picture, you you almost would have to listen to everything. You'd have to listen to Ritz, techno nostalgia, you know, the technos, all those different projects. When you listen to all that as as part of one big sweeping, you know, piece piece of work, then I think Jesus is to be found in that. And you know, that's not the point. The point is is that you're a Christian and and you're expressing yourself and some of those things are going to be more about just dancing and enjoying yourself and other things are going to be more thought provoking I think Seeds, one of my favorite comments I think he ever made was was something along the lines of, uh, you know, my biggest frustration is I've I've never done anything that made any money. And I I wish I had the, the, the exact quote because it's probably even better than that. But instead, he got to be one of those guys who just influenced, you know, so many people. You know, and I think by the time he had died, he had actually considered himself retired from music at that point. And he was, you know, teaching. I I was, you know, and, and the my story there is that I was in conversations with him and, and Bev about trying to issue that stuff domestically. And uh, I just thought none of the stuff is available here domestically. Again, you know, probably uh, foolishly, but I was thinking, you know, why why can't I do the same thing and but you know, license that stuff for for the US? And he was all for that and i remember again just kind of hitting the bit of a wall with with prt who owned a lot of that to work out licensing but steve and i were supposed to talk about revisiting that then unfortunately um you know he died and i, and I kind of just let it go after that years later i posted this thing on facebook i don't know like eight or nine years ago which was a bunch of clippings of things I'd say from, you know, New Musical Express and other things about famous names or Ritz and all those bands. That started this amazing conversation where everyone jumped in, you know, I mean, Steve, was on, Steve Turner, Steve Scott, Bev, uh, Steve Rolls, all, all these different people from that scene, all weighing in on not only that particular music, but how they all first met back in the 70s and, you know, the art scene and and it was amazing.
7: You and I have heard the
2: church men talk about the stone that rolled away on Easter Day. You and I heard other people talk about the stone that rolled in quite a different way. We heard the music that they played and rock and rolled until the morning light. Interrupted by the postman As he brings the early morning light Watch about me You and I, if we have learned Could pave the way for the children of tomorrow Children of
1: tomorrow Back to the virtual interview suite with Randy Layton Right after a quick break
6: Hey, this is Ray, Patreon backer of True Tunes, reminding you that there are a few things you can do that both help True Tunes and should be good for you, too. First, make sure to sign up for the email list at truetunes.com so they don't have to pay the middlemen to send you information. Next, make sure to leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts if you hadn't done so yet. Also, find and follow that Spotify mix that John curates for us every week you don't want to miss it also don't miss the swag shop there are a few things you can order directly from the store and others that can be custom printed for you at the true Tunes store at threadless if you can support the show on a monthly basis join me and the other backers at patreon.com true Tunes, or consider making a one-time gift via the PayPal link on the show notes page lastly make sure to tell your friends about the show personal word of mouth is definitely the best marketing. Trust me on this. Thanks for listening.
1: And we're back with Randy Layton. been talking about uh, playing songs from i've been posting on facebook all about this record Um, that's one of my favorite records and uh, i'm so excited about it it's that robert bond in the shadows record love and war so tell me about um that project and why after all this time you would put so much into bringing it back and and why did it disappear in the first place why has it been so hard to find
4: why would i get involved then uh, is, is one I asked myself. So it would have started because I, I was, I, you know, helped get that record out to radio when I was still working with, with Exit. And that was the last record through the Exit Island deal. And I remember after I'd done the Steve Scott thing, you know, the Lost Horizon project, and the Miserable project, I went to Robert, who by that point had still hadn't secured any subsequent deal. And so, look, you know, I've done this and done that. What would you think about going to write a, 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 an album with me and he said well you know thanks but no thanks I think I have a deal with the RCA and I went well that's really great you know good luck and then about uh, four or five months later I get a call from Robert Glenn well I've been working on our our record and I went what do you mean our record he goes yeah, I've, I've been recording and we're, you know you and I are gonna do this album Okay, well thanks for letting me know. So uh <laughs> so he started sending me demos and um you know it was pretty fascinating. I mean I, I would get a batch of, of you know ten songs and go, Well, I, I like these, you know, five or six and then he goes, Well, that's okay, I've just recorded another ten and you know, at one point he sent me like thirty songs and I told him to just stop it because there were too many songs on the board and and I had you know to pare it down. So I, I pared it down to, I don't know, 17 songs, and that was songs from, from the Riverhouse.
2: A leopard skin coat, cold velvet, and a big self car. Three cigarettes in the ashtray, cup of coffee, and a dream to go far. Four silhouettes in the doorway, cold cash, and a big cold heart. Pocket full of diamonds, burning lips, and the whispers from the stars. Oh, oh. She's been the spellbound. Way down in Mexico, way. This is where she wants to stay. One touch that.
4: But to backtrack uh, to uh, Love and War, I really loved that record when it came out as well. I, I just, I mean, looking back, I have problems with it now in, in terms of sonics. You know, I mean, it's it's got a very 80s compressed sound, and so I was happy on this reissue to go back to the multi tracks and, and redo a lot of that. But at the time, it you know, it sounded very contemporary. It sounded. Uh, the lyrics were, you know, pretty upfront and couched in a lot of interesting, uh, you know, imagery. The delivery was, and Robert had a great voice. They were really good live. And it really seemed like that record might happen. Because I remember Justice getting a lot of ads at at, at, uh, at Album Rock Radio uh, for the first few weeks, but in another similar story compared to the other extra projects, um, There was no retail to back that up. There was no national tour. So, you know, it's going to die, and it did. In 2000, I went back to Mary and said, "You know, I really would like to do a reissue, like everything everything else had pretty much come out on CD, uh, save for, you know, First Strike and you know Thomas." Talking about
1: all the exit stuff.
4: Yeah, the exit stuff.
1: And 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 before you go too much farther there, there is a big difference that Robert Vaughn and the Shadows was the one band on exit that really had nothing to do with the church, right? They were from San Diego
4: and. Yeah, they were the first outside act, quote unquote. You know, they were out of San Diego. They had sent demos, you know, Exit got a ton of demo tapes all the time, and Ro tended to be the guy to to listen to them, and usually most of them were, you know, terrible. But he heard their demo tape and was, you know, pretty impressed, and so he went to Jan, and played it for Jan, and then they went to Mary, and eventually Mary was like, well, go down there and check them out live, and so they, they did that. They came back really, really impressed, and that turned into, uh, you know, them coming up to Sacramento and showcasing again, and them, you know, getting signed. I think they just, everyone saw the opportunity to maybe take exit to the next level, you know, where let's present something to Island that actually sounds like like these guys could be headlining stadiums, you know, n- not, not just some alternative indie kind of act. These guys had the potential to really, you know, blow up big because they had the look and they had the sound and all that stuff. So I think that's why they, they took them on. That wound up bringing some complications along with it because there was less control, I'll, I'll put it that way, over, over what, what the band, you know, did or where they played. Exit pretty much let most of the acts play regular clubs but there were exceptions. Vector's a really good example of a band uh, when they were signed through the A&M deal of a band that was uh, again pushed to college radio and, and surrendered to getting a lot of airplay but when they wanted to go play clubs like the Sevens did they weren't allowed to and that became a really big point of contention. And then a actually wanted to sign them directly and then Mary wouldn't allow it. It's one of those things that I've talked about before where you can be the most talented band in the world, but it's really d- difficult to have your church leadership also be the guys who are your label and are right. your A&R guys. Had there been more of a, of a split between the two, that might've been a different story. Things might've turned out a bit differently. So I think Robert's was, signing was sort of the first step forward of, of maybe kind of seeing what it's like to step outside of that. But Robert was also a bit of a, of a right-wing guy. Uh, he would make statements in the press that uh, would drive uh, island people nuts and probably marry nuts. And, you know, especially around the whole Iran-Contra or not Iran-Contra. At that point, it just would, would have been this sandinista country thing that was going on, which is where Spanish Rebels comes from. And the album cover art was was part of that theme as well. In the industry at that time, that was pretty much not the way to go. You know, I mean, The Clash then a record called Sandinista, which I love but they were pretty much on the on the left side of things and, and if you wanted to paint it as a left-right feel. And uh, Robert was sort of on the right side of things and that that, that didn't set well. I mean, they, they played the Warhouse a number of times and in terms of how the band thought of themselves, Robert was very much, you know, a, a, a Christian, obviously. You know, about half the band was. I think, they, you know, they, they half weren't, but they were supportive. So that was probably, that was also the first time I think you'd have, a, you know, a band there That wasn't, you know, all, all Christians Hey, I
2: wasn't lonely And hey, I wasn't sad I've been tried by the lost Who are the counsel of the dead I've been rejected by this government I've been stranded by my friends I never will surrender Until the better end When I came from town
4: Back to the year 2000, I I approached Mary, said, yeah, I'd love to put this out. And she said, well, Robert has to call me up and ask for the master's back, or it's not gonna happen. And Robert refused to do it. And I had worked up a whole proposed CD of it. I had tapes, so I put together, you know, the album plus, you know, demos and things like that. And said, this is what it's gonna look like. This is what it, it could sound like. And ultimately it just didn't happen. So fast forward, what, 19 years or so, I decided to approach the idea again and this time we were able to get Mary to agree to it given certain conditions and Robert agreed to it and so Mike went in to see what tapes we still had left and uh, amazingly we actually still had the production masters there and a lot of the multi-tracks the only multi-tracks that were missing were for Justices and, and Spanish Troubles but otherwise there was a, a bunch of things to work with. And as I dove into that, in, in, into those multi-tracks, it was amazing the amount of material that I found that wasn't used either mix-wise or song-wise or things like that. So it's really a whole new fresh you know, take on it. Uh, why would I take it on now, especially when I'm dealing with health stuff? that's a good question. It's an interesting tale. It's fortunate that I get to talk about in, in the liner notes about everything kind of leading up to Love and War and the album itself and and the making of the record and everyone's recollections of it and all that and i don't really have to get into much of the story past that because it gets a little bit messier after that it's just nice to celebrate you know you know the album itself
1: i really like the remasters and i guess you're saying full remixes where you you, did you have to break the tapes those masters and then transfer Mm -hmm. it into pro tools and all that kind of stuff man that's a lot of work
4: yeah, because in the end we got 38 songs <laughs> on two CDs out of what was a nine-song project. Um, I talked to Robert for three hours. That formed, you know, one conversation that formed, you know, the basis of what I would pull for any quotes from him. And I think in the end he just kind of felt like the songs all sort of were the same theme roughly. I thought. Really, it it was pretty upfront in terms of the spiritual element. I wondered a little bit about that.
1: When it came out, I'm like, I don't know if this is a Christian record, but I think it's a Christian record in the same way that Springsteen's Born to Run is a Christian record. It's somebody who's coming from a Christian perspective, using Christian imagery to talk about the struggle between good and evil, even when it's just the voices in your head.
4: It's it's a fascinating you know project. Um, it was something I thought would be fairly simple when I started. You know, it was like, well, we'll just you know put out the album, and I didn't know that there would be the multi tracks and a couple songs we didn't have before uh, during the sessions and alternate takes and all that. So, but being the longtime collector and fan and those kind of, you know, reissues and box sets and things. I mean, I, I'm the kind of guy that does go, go down the rabbit hole. So I just wanted to include all that stuff. Uh, plus we have demos on there, uh, including the original demos of were sent to exit. I got them signed in the first place. It was nice to be able to get back finally to the best possible sources on, on all that stuff. It just was a, a lot of work. <laughs> it was fascinating.
1: about and talk about the music of the 77s in particular, uh, Michael Rowe and his various configurations. What were your first impressions when you first heard Mike? And as the years have gone down, what sets this guy and his his fellow uh, troubadours apart?
4: Well, my first exposure would have been pong Over the Abyss. I remember somebody just brought it over to my house and said, you know, this is, this is what Christian Punk sounds like and I put it on went well it's not it's not that it being somewhat disappointed. I mean there was some of that spirit, you know, present, but I also heard, you know, a sapling in there and other things. But I I was like, Well, you know, it's okay, but I have other records that sound more like what you're you're describing. I, I think it'd been presented to me differently that I might have had a different take on it. But by the time I, I heard all fall down, suddenly Everything really seemed to go up, you know, several notches in terms of his singing. I think improved a lot. Uh, you know, the playing was was terrific. The production was great. Everything. The artwork. Interestingly, uh, when I started going down to Exit to work with people there, Mike and I did not really connect at first. You know, C was my connection, and Jam, and Jam was very. You know Jan's job was was sort of being the uh, guy in charge of communication of the outside world and it was you know he's a very easy guy to talk to uh Steve's a very always a very interesting guy to talk to. You're talking and about Steve
1: worked, Griffith or Steve Scott?
4: Uh, Scott and I was just in, intrigued by him and so I spent a lot of time with him a lot of time with, with Jan. I remember the first time I walked by Mike in the hallway it was when his hair was still all kind of, you know, thrown up in the air, like, like in the uh, uh, Baba Vavid I think Jan introduced me and he kind of grunted and I said something and just kind of, you know, <laughs> kept walking. Uh, <laughs> but over time, I started talking with Mike and, and I found myself going, I relate to this guy more than I relate to almost anybody else here. And so, we started talking a lot and exchanging a lot of uh, letters and you I began to understand that we had so many similarities in terms of our, of our musical interests and our, and our personalities that, that it, it just, you know, became a very strong connection. So, and seeing them live was great, bringing them here to Eugene Jane uh, for, you know, for two shows over two years uh, was was a great experience. You know, and then it just as, as things evolved over the years, you know, I, it was just astounding to me the amount of, the, the uh, array of, of uh, styles that he had mastered on electric and, and acoustic, and his voice, you know, could be everything from a you know, very bluesy, growly thing to just, you know, really, really sweet tone, high-pitched stuff. So his abilities in that band made that band so unique. Everybody else brought something to the table too. By I mean, the what, what time they brought on Aaron, that was a, also a, a bit of a step up t- because of Aaron's long background as well uh, with Motown and so on. And uh, Mark Tudel was is undervalued as a writer because he wrote so many mm-hmm. of the best tunes during that era. You know, I mean, literally, it did, it did sort of take all of them to make, a, make that unique sound. But as time went on and different players came in, it became like, you know, the power trio with Mark Herman and Bruce. And all that is still 7's music because of what Mike brings to it, which is not in any way, shape or form diminishing the contributions to say, you know, what Mike and Bruce do. I mean, in fact, they did a lot during that era because Mike is not a, a huge writer. You know, he's not prolific in that way. So Bruce would tend to write a lot of the material, but, but then Mike would, you know, bring the you know, bring his stuff to the table and and you know, and it would become a you know a seven song.
1: The 77's island album the self-titled album as perfect as i think it is or is am i off no that ranks as one of my favorite albums of all time and uh i i just every moment of that record is is uh in my gray matter permanently so is it as good as i think it is
4: yeah it's really good i mean at the time i was playing that thing almost every day. I, I have been living with material quite a bit before that because I had, you know, all, all, you know, all the demos that were done and, and a rough mix of it. So it's one of those things where you know the material and then it gets produced and it comes out and, and it comes out maybe a little bit differently. So probably the most pure moment on there would be something like um, I Could Laugh or, or Pearls because those are essentially the, the demos. You know, and over the years, I haven't played it a lot because of that very element of, I think, of the, having heard all the songs, you know, a ton. But whenever I do go back to it, yeah, it's it's, it's it's great. And it gets back to that, in a different world, should it have become a big deal? Yeah. The band at that time was at their peak as a live act, and the album was, was, was terrific. It also met their goal of making a record that sounded more like the live band, because Awful Down was much more of a produced pop thing, which live, they would take things like Mercy Mercy and so on, and really, really strip it down and extend them out, and it became more of a rock and roll, you know, thing. But the Island record, that was one of the goals from the outset, was let's make an album that sounds like, we sound like, live. And they, they really, you know, pulled that off. It would have been interesting to, to, yeah, to see where it would have gone. Maybe even with a with a follow up record, which, you know, in some ways, I, I guess we could argue that would become, you know, Six of Stones, because those were the next kind demos of, that were shot yeah. around, <laughs> right. you know, post post accident, and I remember having a hand in that as well. And to me, it was unbelievable that the labels weren't picking them up after hearing a lot of those songs, you know, on that on that album, you know. Why wouldn't nowhere else be on everyone's radio, you know, yeah. that summer or something, right? <laughs> but... right?
3: One, two,
6: three, ho, hey, hey. nah, na.
1: You and i are clearly cut from different ends of the same cloth but when you think back and when i when i hear these stories about the projects that you've worked on the years you spent in the trenches helping artists in obscurity thinking about projects like the seven and seven is thing or you know even the recently the two pound planet project doing a vinyl reissue of of an album that that was so good and so few people heard. Okay, so my point. What is it that drives you to invest so much of yourself into work that, that you know so few people are gonna hear? What That's been a constant theme for both of us going back now <laughs> for years. So I need to yeah. hear your answer because I'm trying to figure that out about myself.
4: We're probably on the same page in, in the sense that I, I long ago shelved the idea that I was going to make any money off off of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, to me, it was always about as, as a Christian. I, it's my obligation. I feel if I'm involved in the arts in any element, and I'm and, I, and I'm not a performer, but in, in the other roles that I played, whether it was radio or retail or producing or whatever you know role I did, it was how can I. Make this the best thing that it is so that it reflects my belief in in God. If God is the you know creator of all things, why can't his people be the most creative of all? Right? To me, we, we had an obligation to to be as creative as possible and to be dedicated to that ideal because it reflects our core ideals about what we think about when we think about, you know, Jesus and when we think about God as a as a as a creator. I mean, I even applied that to things like Two Pound Planet," you know, which was was a very was very much a record that I wanted to do that wasn't a Christian album in any sense, uh, other than you know, a couple of the guys in, in the band, including uh, Jerry Chapman, were were Christians, and in fact, we only connected because of the interest in, in the '77s, for example, in Jerry's case. But it wasn't presented that way, you know, Mitch Houston produced it. You know, I, I, I very much felt like it didn't have to be a Christian album for, for it to reflect the ideals that I had as a Christian. So after I, I did that project, and I did Rubber House for the same reasons, okay, I know once while I was starting in these songs, this is not going to be love and war, right? <laughs> it's going to be a different thing. But it's still really, really good music. How can I be involved with this and get it out there and still have it reflect the you know the ideas that I have about Christianity and the arts and all those things? I always wanted to to just have it be something that I can hand into anywhere, Christian or non-Christian, and have like I listen to it and go, That's really good. And I feel you can do that, you know, with virtually anything that, that I released. And that, that was very important to me. And that years and years later, after doing that, I'm finally getting a little bit of recognition for doing that. Not that that's a big driving force. It's just that over the last few years now, I've had people get a hold of me through you know social media and the various podcasts I've done and so on, where people want to hear these stories now and where my place was in it. and and that's that's kind of fun you know it's like well it's nice to have been part of that and it's it's nice to be remembered a bit it's nice to be part of the story because i believe in in the overall story you know and and then we're seeing things like the jesus movie and Electro jesus and things like that so it's an interesting time we're we're seeing a lot of i don't know if resurgence is a really good word but we're certainly seeing a a lot of interest again in a lot of this stuff and and, and the history uh, my hope is that somehow the emphasis on the history kind of revitalizes the the art form itself right. right that we start getting really interesting christian music again that pushes boundaries and and those kind of things and I'm, I'm hopeful that's that's the case because i don't think it's been there for a whole long time there are pockets of things here and there but the excitement that you and I felt through the '80s and early '90s, you know, it hasn't quite been there now. Maybe I'm just old, which is which I am. So yeah. it's 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 a you know it's a different deal.
1: Be back with more of my conversation with Randy Layton right after this.
7: Hey there, I'm Mark Feldbush, and I'm a Patreon backer of the True Tunes podcast. And I follow and listen to the weekly Spotify Gallery Stage mixtape that John curates for us every week. I get to hear classic artists that I really dig and discover new artists. Every week, usually on Wednesdays, the mix is updated with around 40 songs from brand new releases to deep cuts, and from across a wide range of genres including rock, Americana, indie, gospel, blues, sacred music, soul, and so much more. It's also great to hear a mix that blends up great music that is just good, beautiful, and true without all of the genre and market limitations and boxes I hear everywhere else. You can find the mix on the front page at truetunes.com or on the show notes page for this episode. And if you follow it, it will live there in your Spotify browser and update automatically each week. And don't miss the massive archive list where all previous lists get saved. And as great as Spotify is for music discovery, please support the artists you love once you hear and discover them there. Thanks.
1: And we're back with Randy Layton. <music> Randy Layton is less active than in the 90s heyday of alternative records, there has definitely been an upswing in his schedule over the past few years. One of Randy's pet projects is trying to garner interest in a comprehensive compilation of performances by his late father, acclaimed western swing and jazz guitarist Sonny Richter.
4: a remarkable guitar player and that's really almost glossing over the sheer talent that he had you know he started off at i think 14 playing his first uh, professional gigs just a, 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 an amazing backstory he came out of florida a couple of guys and, and the legend has it is a couple of old black guys who were musicians that heard him uh, you know playing around a little bit look we'll teach you everything we know why don't you come on you know come in and, and move in with us for a while and so his mom amazingly and he was one of nine siblings let him do it so he moved in and learned all this stuff and then formed his first band and by the time he had made his way to California and done his first recording session on NGM with a guy named Sam Nichols in 1949, he'd already been playing across the country with different groups. So growing up with him was like something that, you know, sort of took for granted. I mean, I knew I had a dad that was a great guitar player, but when every day you wake up and the guy's, you know, falling out of bed playing scales or locking himself in the bathroom playing scales and you're trying to get a... Uh, and there was always musicians around of uh, a lot of people that, you know, you you would even know. It just seemed normal. When I look back, obviously, that was not normal. But it did feed so many of my musical interests going forward because he was into country and swing, but he was also into jazz and and a number of things. Influenced greatly by, you know, Django, but also other players like Tal Farlow. And when I go back over uh, tapes that he's left behind of him playing around uh, at home, or whether it's tapes from live shows he did with bands going back to the 50s, I I keep discovering things, uh, including even the last couple months that I hadn't heard before that are astounding. You know, he certainly had his opportunities. Um, He was on the staff of the Louisiana Hayride uh, back in the early 50s uh, back when Elvis was first getting known on that play with a lot of cats that all became famous you know uh, guys like Floyd Kramer uh, actually came to him and, and said look you know you should move to Nashville you would clean up you would just do great on, on, on sessions and my father just being young and kind of you know full of himself in a way but he also had a very strong you know artistic streak in him just didn't like the idea of being told what to play so he said no now looking back probably a huge error (laughs) and lost out on a lot of money and prestige by not doing that by the same token i wouldn't be here today or any number of things wouldn't have occurred but those are the sort of choices that he made that enabled him to kind of pursue whatever he wanted musically, but it cost him in terms of what I think should be the case today in, in that I think he should be a household name. Uh, but, you know, he's not. And so I've just done w- what I can do in the last, last several years to kind of get some of that music out to people so they can hear his, his talent.
8: say you like the northwest baby but you up and left your home i don't know why you want to do that girl Where you say you like the northwest baby but you up and left your home yeah now i got the northwest blues Till you come back home
4: Yeah Some people aren't aware that after doing things like the Surely Goodness and Misery compilations that I still continued to work with artists and put out things on, on the alternative label, but those started becoming more more local. I think one of the things that hit me was I'd done all this stuff with people from everywhere, but had not really done anything locally and I felt sort of embarrassed by that because this area had a lot of you know really good talent so I found myself working with everybody from you know blues artists to punk bands to whatever and uh, things that would come out of my label also things that I would just work on that would come out on uh, someone else's uh, you know label as well one of the things that I'm really you know, happy to have done was uh, a project by a guy named Eagle Park Slim, a guy that moved to this area from the Denver area back in, I think, the late 70s. And he was a remarkable man and, and artist, primarily known for acoustic blues, but he also played with bands, and he also sat in with a lot of really cool people over the years. You know, he and I had hit it off at some point back then, and it just occurred to me that we should do a record on him, so so I did. Called Northwest Blues, and we just kind of packed it with all kinds of songs that he'd been writing. And at the end, we also got to put on a 45 he'd cut with a band back in the 70s. And that really kick-started his career after that here in terms of putting out more projects and being able to make a living not only playing live, but also selling copies of, of his music. So I was always very happy to have done that. He has struggled with health issues the last few years of his life, but every once in a while we would run into each other and I'd update him on my stuff that was going on. And we, we talked about doing a, a another album project, but this time I wanted to get him back in the studio with a live band with new material. And uh, he was very excited about that, I was too, and so I started looking around for maybe the best place to record that at, and was working on that when he suddenly died of a, of a heart attack, and uh, we never got to do that project, but you I know, still so think about him a lot.
1: Finally, Leighton catches us up on a couple of other projects on his plate, both as a label head and consultant.
4: Upcoming, we hope to see a reissue of Backifics an Obsession uh, by Steve Scott on, on Low Fidelity, and uh, that will be packed with a lot of extra material that you haven't heard. A first-time LP, CD uh, issue of the work of a guy named Eddie Quinteros, who recorded primarily around 1960-61. He was another prodigy kind of guy. Was already playing in bands at 14. He was a fantastic guitar player already by 15, and was hired as, as a guitarist and, and singer for, you know, to the back of the people. But also had his own career uh, start. And uh, would play with guys like Bobby Freeman and so on. You know, he he wrote his own own material. I mean, he was really just for that time frame, uh, uh, you know, one of those Buddy Holly kind of guys. In that, you know, started very early, seemed to come by songwriting and and and. Uh, Guitar playing really easily and very early, and I think if he had stayed in the business, he would have evolved a lot more, uh, you know, in, in 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 the direction that that Holly got to. It's But, you know, he was kind of talked out of the business by somebody at the kingdom and said, you don't want to be like me, man. You don't want to be like in your 40s, which seemed really old then. And just, you know, making very little gigging. You know, you, you want to get her a college degree and all that stuff. And he took that to heart, quit the biz, got a degree. Although he did come back in the mid-60s for a short time uh, with a band called The Yo-Go-Go's. And who had a regional hit in the Bay Area with, with a song called All Over Town, which is very Bo was like. Did that for a couple of years and then, you know, quit again and, you know, got a real job, quote unquote, in, in a career. But, and he's long retired and had never expected that someone like me would come along. You know, I, I found his story intriguing. Uh, I fought for a long time to uh, get his stuff uh, reheard. Within the last couple of years, I've been able to access a lot of session tapes that no one's heard since they were done back in 1960. We have a lot of outtakes. And so a wonderful label called Sundays has come along, and now they're going to be issuing that material. And that's, um, again, me making contributions in terms of uh, material, uh, writing notes, and all that I just get to make a I think a wonderful contribution on something that's really different for me so I'm, I'm still active and uh, we'll see what else I get to do but right now that's when I'm up to currently
2: you said that you love me now the
1: thanks Randy Randy has always felt like a brother from another mother, whose contributions cannot be overstated. On several occasions, he's put personal reputation and finances on the line to further the appreciation for and acceptance of the music. In fact, I'm pretty sure that if Randy could have had his way, artists with a spiritual dare I say, even Christian, perspective to their work would have been able to thrive in the mainstream without being cloistered and removed for exclusively consecrated consumption. Our years with the original True Tunes print publication and retail outlet would have looked a whole lot different without his friendship and support. Before we wrap this up, I wanted to hear from some people who have worked directly with the man himself over the years to get a feel for what it was like to be on the receiving end of Leighton's support. Take a listen.
5: This is Steve Scott in uh, Early Morning, Ubud, Bali. As you know, the arts are the heartbeat of this island. In the same way, Randy Layton and artists like him are the heartbeat of the progress and the successes of the kinds of artists you would associate with Exit Records Randy Layton is an artist who combines his faith, his enthusiasm, and sobriety over the dynamics and the realities of the process of getting artwork out there. What he does is essential. It's a blend of both his enthusiasm and his faith in the art and an awareness of the reality of getting that art into the public ear, the public heart, and the public eye. I would say that We all need to become more aware of how vital Randy's role and Randy's artistry is in combining enthusiasm, tenacity, hard work, vision, and sobriety. Combining all those things together to create a a launch pad and a binding agent, if you like. Within vital communities are people that play different roles and the role that Randy, an artist like Randy Layton plays as a sort of an apostolic connector, uh, their roles are essential, crucial, to making something as marvelous as the kinds of communities that grow up around Exit Records, uh, making something like that possible.
8: off. Leave that in though. Randy will understand. I have about 10,000 things to say about Leighton, but the main thing I want to say is that Randy saw the future, the whole sort of DIY future, easily 10, 15, maybe 20 years before everyone else did. After having, uh, several record deals with big companies, big Christian companies anyway, and uh, a few near misses with uh, a secular company or two. The 77s were at the point where we didn't really know what to do next, and Randy sent me a little bit of money and said, why don't you record some songs, three or four songs, and let me put them out. And at the time, I thought, well, this is kind of small time. But what I didn't realize is that it would drive us to a way of being and doing that would inform our future. And indeed, here we are in 2023 doing the exact same thing. Essentially, Randy saw that a very legitimate way to work was to simply do it yourself. The way that he was doing it and doing it successfully for himself and the artists that he chose to work with was a good paradigm, so I'm very grateful to him not only for that, but for just years of friendship and being able to call him any time and talk about the minutia of some new Brian Wilson recording or some obscure jazz artist. And I really appreciate friends like that because I don't have too many of those, a few, but I would say Randy's right up there in the top five, if not the top guy. So, Randy, here's to you.
1: As I pull out my soapbox, I'm struck by the word alternative. Randy used it to name his label before it saw widespread use as a description of a genre of music. This music, some called it post-punk, some called it underground, was different. Even something as potentially mainstream as Robert Vaughn and the Shadows could fall along these alternative lines if it felt that the artist was after the bigger questions. There was a way that seemed right to the rock and roll world, like everyone else, and then there emerged an alternative. But that word also described a lot of us as people. We, the fans of this offbeat music, found a sense of community with each other, and that fraternity was, in the end, probably even more important than the music. People like Randy Layton were facilitators of that community. The music brought us together, and without people like Randy, people who got it and valued it far more than its financial rewards, We would have been stuck with things like MTV, or a saccharine culture war Christian bubble version of whatever MTV was playing. When I was 16 and started this whole True Tunes thing, I was just adding my own peculiarity to the odd jams people like Randy and others like Mike Delaney at Rad Rockers in Michigan and people like Bruce were already doing, and it felt like home to me. They welcomed me into their circle, and often that was a circle of people standing around sharing stories and debating musical preferences at the Cornerstone Festival. For Randy and the other progenitors of the original alternative generation, the response to mediocrity was innovation, not mere critique. They expressed their dissatisfaction with the status quo by making stuff, and that was back when it cost a lot of money to pull it off. There was an optimistic, productive spirit in the air. We thought we could change the world one great record at a time. Despair and cynicism is easy. Rolling up our sleeves and creating beautiful things in the midst of dross is not. And every artist, every songwriter, every filmmaker out there with a vision and an idea needs a Randy Layton to help their ideas come to fruition I sure hope the passion and hunger that inspired people like Randy to create alternatives to the mainstream hasn't dissipated into apathy now that alternative is just another genre of music on our streaming services. We still have plenty to rebel against, my friends. Let's kick against the darkness till our boots wear out and F up the mainstream while we still can. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox now. going to do it for this episode of the true tunes podcast thanks so much to randy layton for the music and the passion and the years of friendship and support randy graciously allowed us access to a number of rare and unreleased items from his personal archives if you missed out on his recent reissue of robert vaughn in the shadows love and war project i'll link to an article i wrote about it on the show notes page it's definitely an all-time favorite of mine and one of the best reissues i've ever heard His loving treatment of the mystifyingly obscure Two Pound Planet album came out a few years ago as well. What a power pop masterpiece that was. We'll post a special playlist and you can find a list of all of the great music featured on this episode on the show notes page, of course thanks as always to our patreon backers if you would like to join the group head over to patreon.com slash true tunes or if you'd like to give us a one-time gift you can find the paypal link on the show notes page and thank you for doing all the other stuff leaving us the ratings and reviews at apple Podcasts, subscribing to the weekly spotify gallery stage mixtape and signing up for our email list i'd also like to thank michael rowe and steve scott for their contributions to the show This podcast was written and produced by me, JJT, with co-production and editing and sound design by Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions. Our theme song is a special instrumental mix of Full Circle by Phil Keggy and Rex Paul. The contents of this program are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. Thoughts and opinions of our guests do not represent the positions of the producers or our sponsors. Discernment is recommended. This program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at JJT at truetunes.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee 37206. Until next time, this is JJT reminding you to stay tuned and stay true. Peace.
0: I have a record I want you to play. Don't you think the kids would enjoy a nice
5: song with a melody?
0: What you got, Holmes? It is a rare,
6: one-of-a-kind original pressing. 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 Are we recording?